0: Hello, this is Bob Wilson, Associate Professor of Geography at Syracuse University and host of New Books in Geography. Today I'll be speaking to Edmund Russell, author of Evolutionary History, Uniting History and Biology to Understand Life on Earth. Evolutionary History is a short book with big ambitions. With this book, Professor Russell seeks to explain and chart a path for evolutionary history, a new field uniting history and biology to create a fuller understanding of the path than either history or biology can do on its own. For historians and human geographers, Russell's book is a call to take a fresh look at evolution and its role in history. For biologists, the book encourages them to see the cultural, political, and economic forces that increasingly shape the evolution of other organisms. Professor Russell is Joyce and Elizabeth Hall Distinguished Professor of U.S. History at the University of Kansas. He is a leading scholar in the fields of environmental history and the history of technology. His previous book, War and Nature, Fighting Humans and Insects with Chemicals from World War I to Silent Spring, examined the complicated and fraught relationship between chemical weapons production and insecticide development and the consequences of their use for both humans and the environment as a whole. It is my pleasure to have Ed Russell with me today to discuss, discuss evolution and history and what it means for all of us who care about the past. So, Ed, welcome to New Books in Geography.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Yes, it's great to have you here. Um, So I'll start out by just asking you, what prompted you to write a book about evolution and history?
1: As you mentioned, my first book was about the history of insecticides and chemical weapons. One of the aspects of that story was that insecticides lost their ability to kill insects at a certain point in history. And um, the explanation for that was that the insects in a particular place would have evolved resistance to the insecticide. Um, So that was an example of how humans were carrying out a certain activity based on what was initially a very effective technology. And that ability to control a pest failed over time because of evolution in a non-human population. As I reflected on this, I realized that evolution was much more common in time and space and throughout history than we have appreciated, probably, and that led me to write this book.
0: Yeah, because I I think most people would say that if they think of evolution at all, they think of it over long terms, uh, like the evolution of dinosaurs and the evolution of mammals and things such as that. So it's not something people think of happening, I guess, in real time. Um, in this time span of of a human lifetime or even the span of years or less than a decade.
1: Yes, I think you're right. I think most of us learned in high school biology about evolution as the process that creates new species over millions of years in the hands of nature through natural selection. Basically, we tend to see evolution as something that happens out there in time and space, not right here in time and space.
0: Um, You also show early in the book about possibly a way that evolution played a role in the untimely death of your grandfather. Um, How so?
1: When I was a teenager, my grandfather went into a hospital for prostate surgery. He contracted an infection in the hospital That sent his fever spiking, which overtaxed his heart, and he died of a heart attack. I was puzzled by that because I thought a hospital was the least likely place to die of the consequences of an infection. I assumed that they would treat him with effective antibiotics, and I'd seen antibiotics help cure diseases of various sorts uh, in our family. So I remember being puzzled about that, um, but not finding an answer, and I largely forgot about it. One day as I was writing this book, I was talking about the evolution of resistance to antibiotics among pathogens, and it hit me that this is probably the reason that the hospital could not control my grandfather's infection. Most likely, the hospital had been using an antibiotic that had been effective, and the pathogens had evolved resistance to it. By chance, a few individual pathogens, probably bacteria, made, uh, probably bacteria um, happened to have genes that resisted the antibiotic, and then they survived treatment. They became the parents of the next generation. The next generation inherited those genes, and so the population as a whole became resistant. So I suspect that that was probably what happened, that he was infected with an antibiotic-resistant strain of bacteria, and that's why the antibiotic failed to work, and that's why his fever went so high, and he died of a heart attack.
0: Well, that's a a fascinating story. It just shows how your research was leading you to to think of things in your own past, I guess, in a different way. Um, for, I think for many new books in geography listeners, their knowledge of evolution is a bit rusty. They may not have really um, thought much about evolution or studied it in a systematic way since, as you say, their high school biology class. So can you give us a two-minute primer on how evolution works? Sure.
1: The definition that biologists use today of evolution is change in the frequency of inherited traits of populations over generations, or in shorthand, change in inherited traits in in populations. Um, So this definition, first of all, focuses on populations as the unit of evolution, Individuals don't evolve under this and whole species are not the major unit. Most species are broken down into populations and the evolution happens at the level of populations. So that's the first piece of the definition, populations, meaning basically all the members of a species living in a particular place. Secondly, evolution requires some variation within that population in traits. Then it requires some change in the frequency of those varied traits from one generation to the next. So in the case of my hypothetical evolution in the, in the hospital, the first generation of pathogens treated with a particular antibiotic probably had as its dominant trait being susceptible to the antibiotic. With treatment, the susceptible individuals died off and resistance became more common. So the frequency of an inherited trait, resistance, had changed over generations within a population. Now, one of the things that's important to recognize here is that this evolution did not spawn a new species. And that, in fact, is the most common way in which evolution works. Sometimes populations evolve enough to become new species. Most of the time, they do not.
0: So let's take some of those ideas um, and use them maybe later through this interview to you can tell us a little bit about some examples of this. But when I first read the book or heard about the book, I thought, well, evolution is fascinating, it's a great, important concept. But it's an important uh, concept for biologists and life scientists. So, why do you think um, historians, geographers, and other scholars in the humanities and social sciences? what could they bring to the study of evolution, particularly using sort of the ideas that you have laid out here? I
1: think it's important for humanists and social scientists to take account of evolution because of the impact of evolution um, or the relationship in two directions. That is, I think it's valuable to study and understand the ways in which human social processes have shaped the evolution of non-human populations. And I think it's important to understand how the ways that we've shaped those other populations have circled back to shape human experience. Uh, this is the process that biologists call coevolution. So here's an example. Um, African elephants in the past, a few hundred years ago, nearly all had tusks, males and females alike. If you go to certain game preserves in Africa today, you'll see 40% of the elephants without tusks. Well, the reason is that hunters have been killing elephants with tusks for their ivory, um, which converted a trait that used to be a net benefit, having tusks, into a net liability. So a few rare individuals happen not to grow tusks they survived and reproduced, so tusklessness has become more common. So far, what I've told you is mainly a biological story. Evolutionary theory helps us understand why a certain type of selection, in this case, selection against being tusked, would change the frequency of a trait in a population. So that's an essential part of understanding what happened, but it's not sufficient. The processes that led hunters to want to kill elephants for ivory are the kinds of processes that the humanists and social scientists study in depth and can help us understand. The ivory in elephant tusks went to things like billiard balls, piano keys, carvings, and art. These are not things that people have a basic biological need to have. We do not need billiard balls or piano keys to survive. So we have to look for other motives, such as the desire for recreation, the social value placed on a certain kind of music, piano music. These are the kinds of things that, that historians and other people in humanities and social sciences are good at explaining. So, what I'm saying is that those of us who have been studying things like art, leisure, recreation, have been studying processes with unexpected consequences for the evolution of non-human species, such as elephants. And then, um, conversely, the, the impact that those activities, such as playing billiards or piano, um, had on elephants, leading to the... Uh, killing of large numbers of elephants circled back to change human experience. Now we have an international movement to try to save elephants. So a human impact on a non-human population changed its traits, and our impact on that population circled back to affect uh, human experience later on.
0: Uh, You talk about, right there and in the book, you talk about elephants and how hunting pressures have affected the development of elephants, particularly the development of tuskless elephants. Uh, You also talk about uh, fish and fisheries. And, of course, in many parts of the world, fisheries are are struggling. Um, How has fishing and fishing pressures affected uh, the evolution of fish? Like, how have they been changing due to this pressure?
1: When we think about human impact on fish populations, we usually think about it numerically. That is, if people catch a high percentage of the individuals in a population, say, of salmon, then there are fewer salmon in the sea. And, of course, that is an impact. Uh, But in addition, if we selectively harvest fish that are large – we're creating a strong selective pressure against large size in those fish. And so the individuals who are smaller have an advantage now to survive. If they're small enough, for example, to slip through the mesh in a net. Um, so what we've seen in many heavily fished populations is a reduction in the average size of individuals at adulthood um, and it's, it's because of that survival advantage of being small. So that has impacts not just on the body size of the individuals, but on the size of the population as a whole. Bigger fish lay more eggs than small fish. So in selecting for small fish, we are both changing the average size of the fish and the average number of offspring per fish And then that creates a cycle of declining uh, fish catches that in some cases has led to the closing of uh, fisheries, such as cod fisheries in the northeast part of North America.
0: Well, of course, if we uh, over-harvest fish or over-harvest different types of Terrestrial species or radically alter their habitats, one of the outcomes of that could be the eradication or extinction of the species. But in one of your chapters, you reflect on um, that the type of species that might be most affected is whether they're slow-altering species or fast-altering species, that over time, we're not going to necessarily wipe all life on the planet out, but we might actually end up um, getting... Or altering um, certain species, probably in ways that we're not going to be too happy with. So you can talk about this concept of kind of slow altering and fast altering species that you discuss in the book. Sure.
1: Some species have very short lifespans, and they tend to produce very large numbers of offspring. Other species tend to have long lifespans, and they tend to produce few offspring. So elephants would be an example of long lifespan, uh, small number of offspring species. Um, Those often are very large species, too. Um, And at the other extreme, you'd have bacteria, which are very small and have many offspring per individual. If people are changing the selective environment for a particular population, the the non-human population – that can respond most quickly is usually the one that uh, reproduces faster because evolution is moving along at a faster clip than in these long-lived species with uh, just a few individuals as offspring. So um, as we go about changing the world, it's those small, uh, short-lived, large reproducing species that have an advantage in the evolution game and trying to adapt to human changes on the environment, um, which are happening, of course, now on a global scale.
0: Now, up to our conversation so far, I can imagine some historians and even geographers saying, "Like, well, that's very interesting about the fisheries and also about the development of tusculus elephants. But at least some people might say, well, that's not really at the core of what historians and many geographers are interested in. But in the heart of your book, and I think What might be the most provocative chapter, particularly for historians and human geographers, is you make a case that evolution uh, played a pivotal role in the outcome or development of the Industrial Revolution. And no matter what kind of historian or human geographer you are, you would see that the Industrial Revolution is really one of the most important, I guess, events or processes in human history. And so how did evolution play a role in the Industrial Revolution, particularly with the development of cotton?
1: Let me give you a little bit of background. When I was writing this book, I wanted to demonstrate to readers that evolution is both common and important in everyday life today and in everyday life in the past. So I was trying to figure out a way to make that point, and I decided, well, one way would be just to follow a person through his or her day and describe all the ways in which they encounter the products of anthropogenic evolution. I decided, well, I'll use myself, and I'll start with waking up in the morning in cotton sheets, Mm -hmm. and that led me to do some research into cotton, and the upshot was that, uh, metaphorically speaking, I never got out of bed. (laughs) That story proved uh, so fascinating and surprising that it, it led to a whole, whole chapter in its own right. What I noticed as I was doing this, um, the research to try to figure out how people had shaped cotton in the past was that there was a coincidence in time. I noticed that uh, New World cottons arrived in England just before England invented new machines for spinning and then later weaving cloth cotton cloth in particular now um, a couple points about this first of all this had been treated in the literature as as largely uh, unimportant that is economic historians have largely seen cotton as cotton. Um, there are four domestic species of cotton two that originated in the old world, two in the new world, and the, the literature largely, but not entirely, uh, portrays it the, the challenge of cotton for industry as a matter of quantity. It's been seen as a fungible resource. If you just have enough quantity, you can manufacture. So that's the first point. The second point is that um, historians have long recognized the importance of the cotton textile industry as a leading edge of the Industrial Revolution. It was uh, a place where replacing skilled hand labor with machinery uh, was successful. It was a place where concentrating workers uh, under one roof in factories was successful. And these helped inspire more mechanization in the factory system throughout industry. And this became England's uh, most important industry in the 19th century. So cotton textiles were essential and important to the Industrial Revolution. Um, As I dug into the story, I I found out that I disagreed with the majority of the literature. I concluded that that, uh, quantity was not the only question about cotton. Quality also mattered. The key difference between new world cotton and old world cotton is that the fibers of new world cotton are much longer than those of old world cotton. As long as England imported cotton from the old world, it did not mechanize cotton spinning. In fact, it didn't even try to spin a lot of the cotton. It imported it, made it into things like stuffing and candle wicks. Um, The arrival of long-fibered cotton from the new world in the 18th century was important because long fibers make stronger thread than short fibers. Mm -hmm. Uh, this is intuitive if i were to give you a pile of cotton fibers and told you to spin try to spin it together twist it together in your hands to make thread uh, we would just intuitively sense that very short fibers half an inch long which is what the old world cotton fibers are are um, uh, are in length um, would be harder than one or two inch long fibers uh, which is what the new world cotton uh, was like so and, and textile scientists have confirmed this with quantitative measurements. The strength of the cotton is important because to mechanize cotton, you need uh, to make thread that sh- is strong enough to withstand the rigors of machine handling. Mm-hmm. The Machines did not have this deft touch that hand spinners had. And if you had threads breaking, you lost all the advantage of industrialization and spinning um, uh, a lot of, uh, threads at the same time so uh, it was essential to have long fiber and then this hypothesis was confirmed when i looked at the records of the early cotton uh, spinning factories they used only new world cotton even though it cost much more than uh, um, old world cotton and uh and they in in the um during the American Civil War, when supplies from the New World were cut off, a lot of English factories had to uh, close and, and lay off workers because they could not simply substitute the short-fibered old-world cotton. So so that's a, a story of, of it mattering, uh, the traits of cotton mattering. And then I traced it back to the evolutionary side. The… the uh, all four of the cotton species probably were domesticated about 5,000 years ago. So they had, there was an equal amount of time to lengthen them, and that's what people did over time for all of them. All of them started out with relatively short fibers, became longer under human selection. But the new world cottons happen to have twice as many chromosomes as old world cotton. That means they have twice as many genes, twice as many chances to evolve new traits, twice as many chances for Amerindians to select for longer fiber. And that appears to be exactly what happened. So anthropogenic evolution in the new world by Amerindians over 5,000 years created cotton with the traits that were necessary but not sufficient to industrialize cotton spinning in
0: England. Wow. Well, it is an absolutely fascinating story. And it also, when when we talk about people altering aspects of the environment or, or altering things for their own purposes, we have a, a term for when we have kind of created a new object or tool to use, and it, we call it a piece of technology. And that leads me to your argument that we should see particularly, uh, if, if not plants, certainly animals as a type of technology. And you bring up. Uh, a little debate that you ignited about a decade ago on a history of technology, environmental history, listserv, where you asked, can animals be technology? And sort of sat back and watched um, how how other scholars debated it. So why do you think that we should see animals, or at least certain types of animals, as a type of technology?
1: I think it's important for a couple reasons. One is that it tells us one of the most important ways in which people have uh, tried to master their environment. Um, agriculture is all about controlling, um, or at least heavily shaping, animals and plants to do work for human beings. They, When people took w- wild plants and animals and, and um, started raising them under domestication, they changed the traits. In ways that made those plants and animals more useful for people. And they changed them in trays in, in ways that, that served specific ends, uh, such as producing more food or fiber or pulling plows. At that point, they'd become tools, I would argue, in the same way that we consider a tractor that pulls a plow to be a, a, a tool, a, a technology, a machine. So... Uh, an ox or a mule or a horse that pulls a plow is, is a tool or a technology. So what it does is it helps us see how much evolution made it possible for us to have agriculture, which in turn led to settled societies, uh, urban environments, specialized occupations, and most of the things that historians study. So much of what we call history is a byproduct of an evolutionary process of domestication. That's one point. The second point is that I think it's important for us to recover the history, history of biotechnologies. Uh, today, I think most of us think of biotechnology as the products of recent methods in genetic engineering, um, and uh, uh, using largely techniques from molecular um, biology. And that it, we are creating biotechnologies in that way. Um, but actually, the biotechnology industry suggests that we've been manipulating organisms for a long time, and, and therefore what we're doing now is, is uh, maybe not as new as some people think. Um, my argument is that it's both old and new. Certainly, we're seeing new techniques brought to bear, in older methods of plant and animal breeding, it, we couldn't move genes across entire kingdoms from animals to plants and vice versa. Now, with genetic engineering, we can. So I think that's new. But on the other hand, I, uh, I think they're right that this is an old uh, type of process that we have a new version of today. And what that does, I think, is it helps us recover a usable past in trying to look at the uh, social goals that people that guide people in shaping biotechnologies. If you look at the discussions about motives for biotechnology, it focuses almost entirely on medicine and food. Um, And, of course, those are powerful drivers to develop new organisms. But if we look at the past and the reasons that people have molded plants and animals in particular directions... We certainly see that, but we also see other motives, such as gambling. Uh, I have been researching dogs in England and was surprised to find out how often gambling was a motive for shaping the evolution of dogs. Bulldogs were bred um, as as gambling tools. Bull terriers were, greyhounds were, whippets were. So if we want to have a discussion about public policy implications of biotechnology, I think we need... Uh, a wider concept of the sorts of motives that people might bring to bear uh, and use to shape technologies in uh, certain ways.
0: So why do you think um, some other scholars, when you propose this in the past and maybe up to now, might be resistant to seeing uh, animals as a type of technology?
1: Um, I think that the the people I've heard who have objected to that idea have felt that it demeans the animals, um, to to see them as, as something more like a machine and less like us in a way. Um, and, um, and they're right. It, it does, (laughs) but it doesn't make them any less tools. Uh, it, it, to me, it, it, uh it it is simply the case whether we like it or not that people have used animals as tools and it's most accurate for us to go ahead and, and recognize that now having uh, my feeling is in history that we we should separate documenting past patterns from our evaluation of them uh saying that something uh was or is is not the same thing as saying they should have been, or today ought to be. And um, uh, so I think that there are normative arguments to be brought to bear uh, about how we should treat domestic animals. And, um, uh, but those are normative debates. The, the fact remains that we have a pattern of people using domestic animals to meet very human goals.
0: I can see that part of the resistance, and, and this is something I've experienced even using your work in my classes. I teach a class on animals and society. And so we talk about your concepts from evolutionary history, but one, one of the things we also talk about in the class is um, we talk about pets. And if we t- I think if we take your ideas, we'd have to say that the dogs or the golden retriever um, or beagle That somebody has and loves, I mean, that beagle uh, or golden retriever is a type of technology. But then most people think of their pets. If you ask them, pull them, like, how would you categorize your pets? Most people would talk about them in terms of as a companion, uh, as a friend, or even like a family member. Hmm. And that's not something that we we really think of most of our technologies. I mean, we might love our iPhone and a laptop. But we really don't have that depth of emotional connection to them that we do to that. So do you think that's part of it, like this kind of uh, deep sort of emotional connection we have, at least particularly with types of animals, of thinking, trying to think of them both simultaneously as a type of technology, something that we have created and molded for our own uses, but then also something that we have a deep emotional attachment to
1: Yes, I think you're exactly right. It can be both. Golden Retrievers were not originally created to be pets. They were created to be hunting dogs. Uh, We have adapted that breed to a new purpose um, and many other breeds, of course, uh, as well. And I think you're right that, that the key feature of pets is that they become family members. They usually live inside houses. We usually give them individual names and Compared to agricultural uh, uh, farm animals, we don 't eat them uh, we yeah. don 't uh, we, we usually let them die a natural death at the end of a long life or or something maybe perhaps put them out of pain but but we 're not motivated by raising them for food. Um, so I think we do see them more like family members and and have deep emotional bonds to them um, so i 'm not in any way denying that that uh, I am simply saying that they they are not wolves, uh, dogs, uh, wild wolves at least. All dogs are domestic wolves. But in order to have these companions we trust around six-month-old babies, uh, they had to be changed a lot. So the the ability to have domestic wolves in our houses around babies is possible only because... Uh, people changed them in the past for particular reasons, So they're, they're not – it's not just loving wild nature. We're, we're falling in love with a domestic uh, population of a wild animal.
0: I mean I think the other disturbing thing from your – if we follow this along is that basically that the dogs and cats that we have, if we see them as a type of technology, part of the task of that technology – is not to do work in the traditional sense like a horse pulling a wagon, is what our dogs and cats do. Their technologies for providing love and companionship, and they provide love and companionship because we have molded them over generations and eons to provide that companionship. Yes. Is that too strong a statement?
1: Uh, I, not at all. I think that's exactly right. And I think it's worth reflecting too that it's a reciprocal relationship. Um, that is, dogs get a lot from us. Uh, it, pets, in particular, uh, rarely have to go out and increase the family income. Sure, it's usually the job of the human partner to go out and raise the money that puts the food on the table for both the pet and the person. Uh, The dog provides other kinds of services, as you say, love and affection. And that's mainly why we keep them. I think Um, though there's some other motives such as protection and and that kind of thing that can overlap. Um, But uh, they, they get a lot out of this uh, relationship too. If, if you think about what was over time, the better strategy for wolves in North America, to stay wild or become domesticated, uh, dogs. Um, there are a lot more dogs today than wolves. So, yeah, yeah. so if we, if we equate evolutionary success with, uh, reproduction in numbers, it looks like domestication worked out quite well for, for that subpopulation uh, or, of, uh, or subspecies, uh, of, uh, of wolves. So, um, It's had advantages for them, too. I think it's worth also noting that psychologists have found that people do uh, sometimes form uh, very close emotional bonds with um, other machines. Uh, I mean, not other – well, not other machines. I mean machines, things that are clear machines, particularly computers. If you ask people to evaluate a computer while they're using that computer, they will give higher scores – than if you ask them to evaluate that computer on a different machine, it seems that we don't like to tell computers to their face uh, criticism, <laughs> and uh, and I and you mentioned that that there seems to be a qualitative difference between pets and iPhones. I know some people who are awfully attached to their iPhones and have well. enormous love and affection for that technology. So uh, I'm not saying it's identical, but I'm saying that there's a range, uh, a continuum of human attachment, and that there's, I think, not an absolutely clear demarcation between living organisms and animals. I, a friend of mine moved uh, to a farm in the country and was trying to get a, to know his neighbor who raises cattle and uh, so he tried to strike up some conversation and he he said uh, oh that cow over there what do you call her and he was thinking it'd be bossy or uh, flossy or Bessie or something like that and and his neighbor said well we call that one 86 um, you know yeah. it, that this was this was a a piece of um, uh, it was a manufacturing product that to, to produce beef and to this rancher um, that that was its role it had a number not a name it didn't live in the house it, it was um, I think in his mind he felt about it much more the way a lot of us would say that, that people tend to feel about machines
0: yeah um um, we've talked about the resistance, that, uh, maybe that some people might have to seeing animals as technology, but I'd like to talk about another form of resistance. Uh, I think it'd be fair to say that few historians or human geographers, political ecologists in my discipline of geography. I think few of them employ evolutionary theory in their work. Um, so why do you think that is? Why do you think they haven't done it? Uh, you might not be able to comment on geography since you're a historian, But why do you think there's been, maybe in the past, a resistance to using evolutionary ideas, I think, in the humanities and social sciences?
1: I think the main reason is awareness of misuse of these ideas in the past. Social Darwinism, which was a theory used to justify the exploitation of some people by other people, um, was... was, uh, Well, it was a theory used in that way, and historians are very aware of these misuses in the past and therefore want to avoid repetition. Evolution also overlaps with genetics, and um, there have been, of course, arguments about genetic determinism in the past and leading to things like eugenics movements, forced sterilization of certain people. Uh, Those are real problems and illustrate the potential for the abuse of uh, powerful ideas. Um, I think that's something that evolutionary theory has in common with many other powerful ideas. Uh, Religion has the potential to provide great solace and mutual support for people, uh, good things, and also has been used to kill a lot of people. So um, I think this is, this is just a, a feature of powerful ideas. And one of, to tell you the truth, one of my major Goals in talking about it is to demonstrate that these powerful ideas are not inherently uh, discriminatory. Um, and in fact, the more people know about the science, the better we are to combat the misuse of these ideas. The most effective opponents of genetic determinism, eugenics, social Darwinism, etc., have been evolutionary biologists. So it's the people who embrace this, learn the science, learn how it really works, who are best positioned to argue against um, the misuse of them. And so I see myself allied with those people. Uh, And here's one of my most important points, I think. I, I try to reverse And this is what I would say to any historian and perhaps geographer who who raises this question. Uh, I I highlight a reversal of the direction of causation. So in the past, social Darwinists uh, tended to say evolution inevitably produced the social structure we have, and therefore it's natural and we can't and shouldn't try to do much about it. Uh, In fact, maybe we should reinforce the uh, privileges of one class or a group of people over another one. And I would reverse that and say that uh, social forces have, have been uh, evolutionary forces. I tend not to focus so much on people, um, but rather on other species. And I, and I highlight the importance of social complexity. That is, it's not just that people are doing things, but particular groups of people with particular motives for particular social reasons Uh, affect the evolution of other populations. Um, So instead of seeing the state as the inevitable product of evolution, I reverse it and say the state is an evolutionary force and it it follows processes that are well studied by uh, people who look at economics and psychology and and, uh, politics and these other disciplines. And I think we really need to bring those humanities and social science disciplines into our understanding of evolution and see how that human complexity is, has shaped uh, the world around us.
0: That's great. Uh, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more on that. Uh, I only have one final question for you to reflect on. At, at the end of Origin of Species, Charles Darwin wrote that if others adopted his theory, quote, a grand and almost untrodden field of in- inquiry would be opened. Do you feel the same about evolutionary history? Could adopting your approach radically change the way historians, geographers, and other scholars understand the past?
1: I think it does change it. I don't think it overthrows everything that, that historians and geographers have done in other ways. I, uh, For the most part, I see it as an additional tool rather than what we used to call a complete paradigm change. That sweeps away all other ideas and replaces it. I I see it instead as an extension and addition that helps us develop a fuller understanding. I I see us as as uniting the strengths of humanities and social sciences on the one hand and science, biology, evolutionary biology on the other hand. Uh, And out of that synthesis, we get a, a better understanding of the past that, then we can get, if we stay only inside the boundaries of one uh, discipline. So I think it does lead us to new interpretations of well-studied events. The chapter I wrote about the industrial revolution was intended to show that we can see something new about even something that has shelves and shelves of books about it in the library. If we take evolution into account. Um, So I think it does lead to to some new ideas, Uh, but I, I, um I think it's important to recognize that i 'm not saying it replaces the 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 deep understanding that some of the more traditional um, or and new uh, but more humanities based tools of humanist historians geographers have uh, developed. I see it as an addition rather than a replacement.
0: So building on that, uh, mm-hmm. I see your book, Evolutionary History is in a way sort of defining. Uh, in in discussing some of the parameters of this new field. So if you could help guide it over the next decade or two, what do you think are some of the frontiers of evolutionary history? What would be some of the ways that, uh, that you hope maybe other scholars would, topics that other scholars would explore under this umbrella of evolutionary history?
1: Well, um, I'll mention one that... Um, the the term the Anthropocene has yes. become common uh, people debate exactly what it is and when it started one definition is that it, is, it got underway about 200 years ago with industrialization and an increase in, in carbon content in the air uh, we know that industrialization, coal burning uh led to evolution in non-human populations. Peppered moths in England are the best example. It's often found in um, high school textbooks. Uh, mm-hmm. so probably most listeners are familiar with that. So we know that, but I, I'm not sure that we have traced the impact through as many um, aspects of the world as we can. In some ways, you could say agriculture started at the end. Uh, agricultural areas were were anthropocentric <laughs> mm-hmm. they were localized anthropocenes um, starting 12 15,000 years ago whenever they did each one of those was a, a small anthropocene um, uh, and so we've been seeing these processes underway for a long time um, i'm I, if i were to pick out One example of something where I I think we could see more dynamic interplay than maybe we have, I would look at the interaction between uh, political and economic processes on the one hand and food supply on the other. We've seen some great studies lately of of correlations and and causation between food shortages and political unrest. Um, I think that's, that takes a quantitative approach to food supply. It says, well, bad weather reduced it a certain amount. But what I wonder is is uh, what would happen if we took a closer look at the correlation between plant and animal breeding and political and economic unrest? Um, when have people been able to breed plant and animals to become more productive fast enough to keep whole societies happy and healthy because they were well fed. Um, that's that's the kind of analysis that I haven't seen, and that I and I think would be fascinating. Um, I mean, if you think about our ability to to feed the United States with less than one percent of the population on a farm, that in many ways is a testament to the degree to which we've we bred plants and animals to be incredibly productive. Uh, so we have this whole society resting on on very fast-paced evolution in, in farm animals and plants. And I think we could do more to trace the impact of that plant and animal breeding from agriculture through the food supply to urban populations to political and economic structures. And that kind of synthesis across that whole chain is an area that I would hope people would, uh, might be inspired to research in the future.
0: Well, I think the sign of a great book is that it opens up, it not only raises stimulating questions and answers some of them, but raises new questions for scholars to study in the future, and I think your book certainly does that. So um, it was a real pleasure to talk with you today, Ed, and um, I encourage our listeners to get a copy of Evolutionary History. It's available both uh, in a paperback version and ebook versions through your local bookstore and online retailers so thanks again ed for taking some time out to join us on new books in geography
1: it's been my pleasure thank you for having me